You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, everybody. Good on you, Nina. Well done. Long reading and lots of hard words there. Good job. You did, you did very well. What on earth is that reading about? I'm going to try and give some context to that. It is a great passage, but give me a moment. We'll get there in a bit. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Doing pretty good. Excellent. Good to see you all. Um, we've got some new folks here. I don't know if you noticed when you were trying to get a park, there's a, there's a, a COVID testing line. So if anyone's wandered in from the COVID testing lab, welcome. You'll get your, your, you can get your jab just in. No, I'm kidding. You can't get... I know it's testing. Anyway, if you've wandered in from there, you're very welcome. It's good to be here this morning. How good is it to worship our great God through song? It was so nice having Jamie on the drums. It was just awesome. So, so good. Well, we are in our final week, as Paul said, looking at this topic of putting our faith to work. Seven weeks we've had trying to connect what we do during the week with our faith. And it's, it's our hope at church that today is far from the last time we talk about it, right, of how our faith connects with our work. Our, our hope is that this series has kind of sparked an ongoing conversation around faith and work. Um, it's been really lovely having interviews, right, having people up every week, just hearing about what they do and how we're trying to connect faith and work. So I, I hope that kind of continues as we move forward. As Paul said, we're having a Q&A, so I'm going to try and preach a shorter message, don't laugh. Gonna be, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, and, and so we can give a good amount of time to questions. Okay, so I've worked hard to trim it. Okay. Now you might be thinking after seven weeks on a topic of work, what is left to talk about? A lot. Makara and I were talking a couple of weeks ago. We could do another series next year on this topic. It is huge. But anyway, so there's lots to say. I'm not gonna say it all in this 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 message today, but there's still a lot to say on this topic of faith and work. I remember probably about showing my age, about 20 years ago, being at church, a great church, and there was lots of young folk gathered at this, I think it was an evening service, or maybe it was a, a, a sort of event the church put on. We were all there, sort of in our late teens and 20s, and a guest speaker came to speak. And he was from a particular organization, a, a ministry, a really good ministry organization, and he came, and I'll never forget what part of what he said. He said this, nine of you go to work, so one of you can be employed to do the Lord's work. Nine of you go out into the world and earn good money so you can be generous and tithe your money so that someone can do the Lord's work. And I still remember he had this graphic behind him. It was probably on an overhead projector, you know, back in the day. (laughs) He had this graphic where it had nine people in business attire, you know, nine men and women in business attire with a big equal sign to one person, you know, holding a Bible, right? It was this cheesy kind of graph, but I've never forgotten. It really burnt into my mind. Uh, Now, this guest speaker, right, he had a job to do, okay? He had a job to do. I get what fundraising's like. He was trying to recruit particular workers for a particular ministry, and he was trying to raise funds for it, okay? So, and I don't want to necessarily either argue with his economics for his vision for generosity, but what I had a problem with, what I still have a problem with, was his narrow vision for everybody else in the room. Kind of bugged me then, and it bugs me now. See, as I think back, we had some pretty amazing people in that room. We had future lawyers, 
doctors, CEOs of NGOs, CEOs of huge corporates, entrepreneurs. We even had a Christian rock band singer in the room. <laughs> and, you know, just one of those. Oh, thanks. Uh, we had professors of literature. We had artists, painters, musicians, builders, and some pastors, and many, many more. And I just, the message all of us received that day, nine out of 10, go and earn money so we can employ workers that really matter. How does that make you feel about your work? If I were to get up here and talk like that about our work in the secular world, how would that make you feel? Now, we've talked about this a lot, this series. Teaching like this is really dangerous. It's sad, right? It can lead to lots of things. It can lead to just a meaningless attitude toward work. My work doesn't really matter. We've talked about our work and purpose, haven't we? It can lead to a real separation from our spiritual life and our work life. You know, my work life's got nothing to do with my Christian faith. The decisions I make at work and in the boardroom have got nothing to do with my Christian convictions. How dangerous is that? See, my hope in this series is actually that we've been doing the opposite. We are one person. Now, last week we saw that being a Christian makes a huge difference in our workplaces, that we partner with God in His redeeming work in the world. I wonder if anyone remembers the question, kind of the prayer that we were challenged to have on our hearts. How can we have God's imagination for our workplaces? Do you remember that? How can we have God's imagination for our workplaces? What, what a great prayer to pray every day. Lord, help me to have your imagination for where you've divinely placed me today. Now, today, we're going even big, bigger picture. There's much more to say. Today, we're going even bigger picture. We are going to explore how every single one of us, not just one out of 10, how every single one of us, no matter what work we're involved in, is part of God's loving and serving the world, right? Every single one of us, no matter what work we're in, we are part involved in God's providential work in the world. Now, Dave, what on earth do you mean? What are you talking about? Okay. What do I mean by God's providence? Here's a great quote. This is what you and I, let's try and orient ourselves around this topic. This is what you and I are involved in. Have a look at this. I like this quote by a guy called Robert Banks. Do we have it there? Oh, great. Okay. Uh, no. No, back. Yeah, that's it. Thanks. Okay. All that God does to maintain the universe and human life in an orderly and beneficial fashion. This includes conserving, sustaining, and replenishing in addition to creating and redeeming the world. How are we involved in, in serving the world? Basically, it has to do with being the daily provider of whatever is necessary to meet the material, animal, and human creation needs. Let me try and explain that more as we move on today. Now, theologians call this idea common grace. You and I, in our daily, ordinary work, partner with God in serving and blessing the world. This is a revolutionary thought. It is a, it's a bit of an aha moment for all of us. And 500 years ago, it was a massive aha moment for the Reformation movement. Bit of a quick history lesson. It was common uh, teaching in the Catholic Church at that time, many, many years ago, 500 years ago, that only really the priests, the nuns, and the monks did the special work. Right? That was called the state. They even named it in, in ink. That was the spiritual estate. Priests, monks, and nuns, they did the necessary work. 
Because, of course, the church was the only manifestation of the kingdom of God. That's what they taught. Everybody else, farmers, laborers, you know, merchants, they were part of the temporal estate. It didn't really matter. All it did was kind of raise some money. How do they practice their faith? Raise some money, give it to the church, and attend church. It's a pretty narrow vision for their work life, right? Thankfully, the Reformation helped followers of Jesus realize we can love and serve God in whatever we do. But here's the thing. I think about the, the opening kind of story I talked about. A bit of this thinking exists still in the church. Right? There are many in the church who still kind of feel like second-class Christians because even though they might be doing great work in their current roles, it's a good fit, they're doing good things, it's not directly church or ministry. And here's what I want to talk about as well. Part of the feeling is, I don't know, if, I don't think I've been divinely called where I am at the moment. What we need is a bigger theology of God and our work. Now, Banks, the guy I quoted before in that helpful quote, he has this idea of thinking about God as our vocational director, which I love, meaning you haven't just fallen into the work you find yourself in now. God has you there. You are God's woman where you are now. You are God's man where you are now. Even if you weren't called there by angelic fanfare, right? Now, let's just spend a couple minutes. There are lots of characters in the Bible who were not directly working for the church, okay? And they, you know, in the temple or priests or prophets or whatever, and they weren't necessarily directly called by God. There was no fanfare, but God had them use their gifts where they were. Kara mentioned a few weeks ago, Bezalel and Aholiab, great names there. They were craftsmen in the tabernacle. They weren't divinely called by God. Moses just handpicked them, but God worked, his spirit worked through those people to do incredible craftsman work in the tabernacle. Now, I don't know if you know the story of Esther. It's a great story of exactly this. Esther wasn't working for the church. She won a beauty competition, right? Hardly working for a ministry organization, She won a beauty competition. She had no direct call from God. She hid her Jewish identity. But God used her where he had her to save her people from being slaughtered. What about Daniel and his friends? Was there some sort of divine angelic calling? No, they were ripped from their homes, taken in chains to a foreign land. But God used them because of the gifts he'd given them, the intellectual ability with languages. and They rose to prominence and again, blessed God's people because of where they were. Now, what am I trying to say? The Bible's full of people in secular work, okay? And part of God's plan is he uses them where they are. None of them had the direct divine call from God, but God used them. God used them through his providence to their positions to serve his people. Now, what's crucial, though, don't forget this, what's crucial is these persons had a clear sense that they are in a position where God desired them. What does that mean? They felt like God had them there. Let me ask you, do you think God has brought you to the place you are working now? Just spend a moment thinking about that. Do you think God has brought you to the place that you are working now? Oh, but I don't feel called and I didn't get... Not the question, right? Do you think God's brought you to the place where you are working now? Because he has. 
God's providential hand has brought you right where you are now. This is our choice. Our choice is how awake we are to that reality. That makes a difference. Every single one of us plays a part in God serving the world. How awake are you to that reality? Can I give you an example? Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, give us our daily bread. How does that happen for you? When I pray that, give, us, give me my daily bread, bread does not fall from the sky. Does it for you? I'm curious. No, it doesn't. Here's a good quote talking about this. I like this. The theologian talking about this. When I go into a restaurant, the waitress who brings me my meal, the cook in the back who prepared it, the delivery men, the wholesalers, the workers in the food processing factories, the butchers, the farmers, the ranchers, American, and everyone else in the economic food chain are all being used by God to give me this day my daily bread. This is the doctrine of vocation. God works through people in their ordinary stations of life to which he has called them to care for his creation. In this way, he cares for everyone, Christian and non-Christian, whom he's given life. Isn't that interesting? You and I are partnering with God in how he loves and serves the world through our ordinary and daily work. Now, let's look at the example that we have from our reading, read so well by Nina before, Nehemiah. I don't know if you know him. He's probably a lesser-known character in the Old Testament. I love this book. Read it. I mean, goodness me, it, it inspires me every time I read it. Such a great character. He's a great example of just this. Now, I'm going to give you this example, then we're going to talk about some modern-day ones, and then we're going to jump into a Q&A, okay? So, you could read this story about Nehemiah and think, oh, yeah, story about a guy getting sad and building a wall. So what? Far more than that. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more than that. What we have here is a great example of a man whose heart was stirred by what he heard and he felt called into his vocation without angelic fanfare. Now, can I give you a bit of context? Who's Nehemiah, right? He was born in Persia. He wasn't born in, in Israel. Probably his grandparents or great-grandparents were carted off into exile by the Babylonians, right? So he didn't grow up in Israel. Grew up in a foreign court. He rose to power, a bit like Esther and Daniel, right? He, God gave him gifts, and he was in the court of a foreign king, and a pretty senior role, the cupbearer, maybe an advisor, whatever, close to the king, okay? That's where God had him. He found himself in an enormous place of opportunity to do good for his people. He asks after his fellow countrymen. After about 70 years or so, the Jews were allowed to go back to Israel, and, and he's asking, how are they doing? The answer is not good. They are not doing well. And the quote is, they are in great trouble and disgrace. These are his people. They are not doing well. And he's cut to the heart by this news. Why aren't they doing well? Well, we're told because the wall's broken down. The wall? Because the wall's broken down, the gates are destroyed. Then Nehemiah prays. His prayer is beautiful. We didn't have time to read it all. You can go read it yourself. But he prays a beautiful prayer. And then I love this. He doesn't get a supernatural answer to his prayer, much like us when we pray. He doesn't get this heaven opening. No, no, God works through his hand of providence in Nehemiah's life. Now, because of his foreign position, because his position of power he has, and it, it, God uses it. 
He's bold enough to talk to the king. He's sad in the king's presence, which was not a good thing to do in an ancient court. But the king asks him, why are you sad? And he tells him, tells him of the horrible state of his city, of his people. The king moved, offers to do something about it at the king's expense. Basically, he makes Nehemiah governor of that area to do something about the situation there. And that's the story of Nehemiah rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. Now, it would be a big mistake to think that it's just a wall. He's just building a wall. No, 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 no way. Can we just spend a minute thinking about what that wall represents? You might be thinking, where is Dave taking us? Just stay with me here. Think of what it means for the people of God in Jerusalem. What does a wall signify? Security, right? Think about these ancient towns. Without a wall, you were so vulnerable. Raiders could just come in and pick you off. You were absolutely vulnerable. So they needed a wall to feel safe, of course, right? But it's more than that. They needed a wall to flourish as a people. It's no exaggeration that because of Nehemiah's work, we have the reading that Nina read to us. Without Nehemiah's work, he wasn't a priest, wasn't a prophet, didn't work in the temple. He was an administrator. Because of what he did, the Old Testament was preserved for us today. But think of what else can take place when a wall is built and maintained. A whole city can flourish. You think about it. You think about if you're in that city, are you going to invest your time and your money into building a business when raiders can just come through? Think about being a baker. Think about making bread and raiders has come through. They take your materials. They smash your oven. Are you going to invest in it? Absolutely not. No one's going to go to the effort to doing something like that. But with security comes flourishing and economic prosperity. Business ventures start to happen. Artisans work on their craft, secure storage for food, for precious metals, banking, you name it. Without a secure wall and the passion, vision, and determination of Nehemiah, none of this would take place. Remember, they were hopeless and in disgrace. Okay, Dave, so what has that got to do with me? This. The work of putting a stone upon a stone is never just the work of putting a stone upon a stone. Building a wall is never just building a wall, you see? Let me give you another example. Here are some pictures of what people call the winter of discontent in the United Kingdom. In the late 1970s, a number of industries organized a strike against, uh, against the government, stagnated wages, all that kind of stuff. Not, I won't get into the politics of it. But famously, the garbage collectors took part in this. They striked. So did the grave diggers as well, by the way. I don't have photos of that. Wouldn't that be intense? Um, the scenes like this could be found all over the UK. Think about that. Think about living in a city like that. It would cause quite a stir. A new appreciation for jobs like garbage collectors came to the front of people's minds, right? People who collect garbage are an integral part of our society. All it takes is a few days of them not turning up for that to happen. Does that look like a city flourishing? Looks like a place where rats flourish, right? Now, I reckon we had a similar experience in COVID last year, do you? We started to have a different appreciation for different jobs. A similar experience. You know, as we're experiencing lockdown, our appreciation for other jobs that may have been looked down upon, let's be honest, and undervalued in the past, really changed. Didn't we think of truck drivers differently? Just that whole necessary worker, didn't that completely change? So many, how many of us were necessary workers? 
no offense, but um, just think about that. We thought of, we started to think of truck drivers differently, right? Now, they always do what they do, but without them, we just recognized how vulnerable we were. How about supermarket workers? They were necessary workers. Why? Because that's how God gives us our daily bread, you see? How about cleaners? Where would we be in a pandemic without cleaners? Tim Keller makes this great point. If, if no one ever cleaned your kitchen bench, you would die. Men, think about that. Okay, no, I'm kidding. But do you know what I mean? Like, if, if no one ever cleaned your house, you would die. Think of the, the infant. You see what I mean? There is dignity in all kinds of work. I think COVID just gave us an opportunity to think differently about different types of work. We were less enamored with high-paying, kind of flashier jobs, weren't we? And more attuned with just how much we need these other roles. There's, there's the number, by the way. I'm going to finish up just in a moment here. We need these times, don't we, to see every job as playing a part in God's providence. Every job. You think about this. It's you. Every job, every vocation, every role is part of God serving a world that he loves. How awake are you to that reality? Okay, I'm going to leave it there. I had lots of examples to go through, but I think let's give some more time to our Q&A so we can do that. So we're going to ask the panel up, go chat amongst yourselves for a couple of moments, and we're going to set up the panel and we'll get going with our Q&A. Think of questions, text them in, and Paul will lead us. All right, let's do it. Mix it up. There we go. Thanks, Maz. Um, so welcome to the panel. Um, we've done this once before when we had two services, so there's a lot more people in the room. Um, just saying that number hasn't changed, um, so <laughs> why not send me a text? Uh, but thank you to those people who have, and obviously, depending on timing, because we're going to do at least 20 minutes for this, 20, yeah, 20, 25 minutes, and we'll see how we go. And we may just even open to the floor, but we'll see how we go first. Uh, so to introduce the panel, we've got Tani on the end. Tani is a social worker and works for New South Wales Health, married to Jono and two little children, and one on the way, <laughs> so that's so exciting. So welcome, Tani. Uh, Andrew Sloan is a lecturer, a senior lecturer of Old Testament at Moreland College, and also previously a doctor, a medical doctor. We have, and my, um, Andrew actually opened the series seven weeks ago, so thank you for that. And then we've got Cara, you've all heard Cara, I think she's spoken twice in this series and was on the previous panel. Um, and just as I've said this before, but her, her bio says um, she is a writer, author, speaker, teacher, lecturer, and I love this, Jesus has shaped all her in all she does, which I, which I love. And if you're new, this is Dave, he's just obviously preached, he's the senior pastor here, um, and I'm Paul, one of the regulars here. So I'm just going to kick it off. Um, we've done a whole, like I said before, we've been right through the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, I was writing it down, Ephesians, Matthew, 1 Corinthians, Colossians, and Nehemiah. So we've done a full 
gamut about work. And I think Dave's right. We could talk about this for, for a long time. And, and we all go through different struggles when, uh, within our workplaces, within our personal lives at home. So, but I'm going to kick straight off into the question. The first one is, and, and, I, and I think it's important where we are right now, is burnout. Advice on addressing burnout was our first question. And I'm not going to point to anybody. Who would like to start? <laughs> um, I'll give it a bit of a go. <laughs> um, burnout is a very real issue for a lot of people. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people don't realise they have it until everyone else tells them they have it. Um, and until sometimes it's, it feels like it's too late. Um, so it's important to realise what the red flags are. I think burnout is, is something that shouldn't happen to the people of God in lots of ways. We have this, this concept not of work-life balance but of work-rest rhythm. Right at the beginning, God established this rhythm that we need where we work and we rest. When God rested in Genesis 2, he didn't need to rest. He wasn't tired. He didn't rest because he was exhausted. He rested because he was setting up a pattern that's healthy for us. And um, we need to make sure that we rest. Um, but I think that rhythm means that there are seasons that we can go in and recognising what we might have a busy season and then we have a restful season. Um, but listen, listen to the people around you. They probably can see when you're heading towards burnout before you can. Um, and be aware it's okay to rest, um, that God wants us to rest. He wouldn't ask us to do more than is is physically, mentally, emotionally okay for us. Um, and I think try and set some good rhythms in place for yourself. And I know in some professions that's really tough. Your work is decided by others and sometimes they see you as a resource, a human resource rather than as a human being. Mm. So um, be aware of those pressures as well. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really tough thing, but we all have red flags that, that we should recognise. Maybe it's when you're struggling to sleep at night. Maybe it's when you're not eating properly. Um, maybe it's when you're not enjoying life as much as you used to. There are red flags that can signal that we're heading towards that. Cora, can I just sort of take that one step further? There was a question that came in earlier. Uh, what would some advice be to a Christian who struggles uh, with being a workaholic? Yes. <laughs> I, um, I had this friend and she was saying, can you speak to my husband? He's really got this faith and work thing. And I said, oh, fantastic, awesome, I'm so glad. And she said, no, it's a problem. And the problem, <laughs> was, the problem was he was a builder and he said, God wants me to be a builder and I've got to build and I've got to build a bit like Nehemiah. But um, he took it too far in the sense that he didn't see he had other areas of work in his life, which was being a husband and also being a father. And so he neglected, he saw it as, as God telling him to just work basically terrible hours. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I think we need to be aware of this. Um, we need to be aware of if we're, whatever we're, we're all made to worship something. Um, and if we aren't really conscious of worshipping God in our work, mm. then we will worship work itself. It's such a huge okay. temptation. I think workaholism is actually worshipping work. So we need to be aware of that and, and, yeah, alert to that possibility, really submit it to God. Um, we are God's people who are working. We're not mm. 
putting work first in everything we do. Right. Happy for someone else. Yeah, Andrew. I was just going to pick up on Hayden's one. Yep. Um, I was going to pick on, I think it was one of the things that you mentioned, Tara, in one of your talks, um, about what is it that gives us our value. And our value is given to us by God in Christ through the gospel. Uh, and if we work out of that sense of value, rather than working in order to construct our value, that makes a massive difference to how we see our work. Mm. The other thing that I would say to the builder, and uh, this is actually a conversation I had with a friend years ago in India who was struggling to, um, to counsel a friend of his who was a, a doctor. Um, and in the particular part of the world he was working in, the calls on doctor's time were, they were just almost infinite. Um, and this guy was working himself into the ground and his family into alienation. And the point I made was there are a bunch of people who can do the doctor thing. There's only one person who can do the husband of his wife thing mm. and the father of his children thing. Mm. Now, not everybody is married, not everybody has children, but everybody has particular people that God has placed in your life for whom you are uniquely significant. And if you invest too much of yourself and your stuff in your work, you are robbing those people of the gift God wants you to be to them. Thank you, Andrew. I just got a question through that how do we ensure we balance the two things of, of work and family? And I think that, that answers it nicely. Thank you. Tani, I'm going to go over to you. I have a... Yeah, do you want to add to that? In terms of the um, burnout question, I kind of do have something to add in that I work in, essentially it's in a mental health role, um, focusing on children, families, mental health. Um, but in my workplace, burnout is really common amongst workers, therapists mm, and mm. Um, allied health professionals. And so I think I agree with Cara in terms of you, the, the red flags can sometimes be missed in ourselves and they often come up, right, in irritability in relationships with our family, et cetera. But it made me think on our role as people of faith to be support to our colleagues who are having burnout or experiencing burnout because I can think of quite a number of my colleagues who are, who are burnt out or on their way. And part of my role, aside from my work, is to be a support and a comfort to my colleagues and to use it as an opportunity to point to the sufficiency of God, which they don't yet know. <laughs> because so often when I've felt burnt out, it's really when I'm striving in my own sufficiency, my own abilities and my strengths. And that happens. Um, and God is gracious to reveal that to me. And then I can submit to him and burnout often resolves, right? But for colleagues who are, who are not Christians, to be able to gently and sensitively offer your comfort and support to them, a listening ear, but to also say the reason this is exhausting is because we're not made to do things in our own strength, right? Like we have a limit to what we can do, but there is a limitless God. Yeah. Um, and however you say that would be different and unique to your relationship with your colleague, but I think that's, a, that's something that I've considered. So, Tony, I'm going to carry on with you for a bit. So, you're a mom and you're about to be a mom for the third time, um, and we have some expectant mums in our, in our community here. When you first had Lucia and you stopped work, and, and, and like you said, it's a very engaging and you're in it all the time, being a health worker, how did you find that? 
where did you get your purpose from? What is that like? I loved it, to be honest. Going on maternity leave was fantastic. I knew I'd love being a mum, but I loved it even more than I okay. thought I would. Um, and, you know, the first sermon from this series where it showed the florist and the significance of that work really gave words to what I've often thought. I wanted to be a florist once upon a time. Um, so that was part of it. But also I think that wherever you find yourself, whatever you're doing can be um, worship to God and um, is meaningful. So when my days became changing nappies, be feeding a baby again, <laughs> waking up a lot, I I just knew that that's where God placed me for that time mm. and that was my role, that was my job without okay. being any, you know, it. and I just could see that God was at work in that too, yeah. that the care that I offered to my baby was meaningful, even if it came with exhaustion and tiredness and other things. I just saw it as incredibly valuable, maybe even more valuable than my work, um, actually. So not everyone finds that, but I just found that to be true for okay. me. Thank you. Uh, Dave, more of a practical question from you, so not a theological one. Um, Sydney, full of stresses and strains, we all live in a fast-paced, you know, everybody's looking around. I went to dinner party, the first topic of conversation was property, so boring. Again, it's the thing that everybody wants to talk about. But all the stresses and strains of work and all that. Um, how do we support each other in that struggle as a community of believers here? How would some practical advice? Mm, good question. I, I felt the same. I went to a party last night and the topics of conversation is city house prices, <laughs> renovations, where are we sending our kids to school? Yeah, oh. it's just kind of like, oh boy. So I kind of think we need to change the topic of conversation a little bit, yeah. you know, as Christians and just, it can be hard, but to have those just normal spiritual conversations, normalised spiritual conversations with with each other, I, you know, subtle plug for small groups, but I think it, <laughs> it, it is a, a regular time to get together as Christians to talk about these things and to be honest, I think it's really hard to be, to be honest. I yeah. think we struggle to be vulnerable. We talk about that a lot. Of, I think this area particularly we're in, I talk about this a lot. We wear the masks. We've got it all together. We're successful. And uh, our hope and prayer is that our church would be a shining light. We're, no, 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 we're vulnerable. We all struggle. And it's hard. It, it is really hard. So my hope and prayer is we have those conversations. But it starts by being honest, I think. Yeah. Uh, and so if you want to be that, then be honest with, with your friends and have those conversations. And I don't know if anyone would want to add to that. Andrew? Um, Something that uh, Alice and my wife has encouraged uh, both of us to do, um, and I found really helpful, is when having conversations about what, what people are up to during the week, ask if there's something that they would like me to pray mm. for them mm. about. Mm. I've got a dreadful, dreadful memory um, for <laughs> things like people and their interests and that kind of stuff. People are less different. Um, it's true. Um, I'm a terrible human being. Um, so I will not remember to pray for you during the week, almost certainly. But taking the opportunity to pray with someone then and there can be really, really helpful and encouraging. because, it, And it kind of brings ordinary life into this time and mm. space, mm. which I think can be really helpful. So... Um, if you've, got a if you've got a good memory, then you might remember to pray for uh, folk that you talk to. That's great. 
I don't, so I pray for people then and there. Um, that, that, I think, yeah. can be really, really helpful. I, I actually had that exact experience this week. I phoned somebody to get some prayer. I've had a tough week, sick parents, the whole, the whole bang shoot. And he, so I sent a text, oh, please pray. And he said, yeah, no, I'll get onto it. And then he called me and said, well, no, I'm just going to pray now for you on the phone. And, and it was, you know, as Christians, we can so easily pray, and, it, and it's a gift we get given to be able to pray. But can I just encourage everyone to sometimes just pick up the phone and do something? You know, um, a friend of mine many years ago, he said, oh, all my Christian friends pray, and all my non-Christian friends do stuff for me. And I went, oh, oh, that hurt. It stung a bit as a Christian. Because we say, you know, pray is a, a gift. But I think sometimes we can just get so caught up in, you know, oh, yeah, well, I'll just pray, and, you know, you won't phone or turn up. Um, this one... So I'm just going to, I've got a few popping through here as we're talking. You're Sorry. doing well, Paul. <laughs> um, how do you manage staff, this is a staffing issue, in your workplace that are critical of other people in the team? How would you manage that? And, yeah, especially when something's not been done well. Um, okay. Have a go, Cora. <laughs> then, yeah, I've got some ideas too. Yeah. I think, um, I think this is something that Christians are more aware of and outside the church people are less aware of it's actually feels like it's um it's fair game just to criticize other people in the workplace this is particularly something I find Christians often struggle with teachers tell me they find the staff room really hard because there's a lot of gossip going around but you can um you can make a stand and I think it's important to make a stand um so one thing that I've heard someone do uh, is if someone starts off by criticising someone else on their team, he says, I want you to tell me two things you're thankful for in that person before you go on with the criticism. Um, and they were saying that what that does is just adjust the lens through which that person is looking and he finds it just tempers the criticism and often it becomes a much more constructive conversation. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's... I know people who will just walk out of a conversation that's gossipy or critical, um, just make it really clear that that's not something you want to be part of or you want to listen to. Um, and I think that's a, really, that's a really important difference that Christians can bring in a workplace is not participating in those sort of conversations. Yeah, can I, can I just add to that? So, so I think there's probably two aspects to that, too, that scenario. One is you may not lead that team and you may be part of that team, like you said. And, and I think we have two responses. I think even though you may not lead that team, we still have a responsibility to lead ourselves. And, and we can, like you say, isolate, not isolate ourselves, but you can, you can change the subject or, or step away from it. As a leader of that team who you'd be aware that that stuff happens, in, in my experience, it's actually about setting expectation of how the, the, the sort of the cadence of that team or the, the, the working rules of that team. And I think you do have a responsibility as a leader to set the tone. And, 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 and that tone is set by example. So if they see you doing it at a management meeting, people see that stuff and they just go, well, he accepts that behavior, so it's going to become the culture of our team. So that's how I would, you know, if you lead it, you've got to set the tone and pull people up, hold them accountable. This is, this is, this is the line we set for ourselves. That's the line we've got to hit. Dave. That's a, well, that's just about if you can. I haven't been in a corporate workplace for a long time, but establishing values, if yeah. it's possible, you know, together, what do we want to be, you know? And then holding people to it. I don't know if that's possible for you in the corporate world, but Tony, do you want to add anything to that? Um, I don't. I don't lead a team. I'm part of a team, but um, I guess it's just 
maybe my workplace as well, that I'd always be curious as to what's going on for that person that's yeah. being yeah. the critiquer. Um, and, um, and that would be, in my workplace, that would be a sign that there's needing more supervision for that person or more mm. support. Mm. Maybe it's an indicator of their own burnout or their stress load or something going on for them in terms of that relationship between those two colleagues. Um, but that's maybe unique to my workplace where we are talking about how people are going all mm. the time. <laughs> Thank you. Andrew? Um, I, I don't, is there, is there a difference between um, unhelpful, destructive criticism... You're right. ..and identifying an issue that needs to be addressed? Yeah. Um, one question I think can be helpful is, what is it that you can do to help this person deal with this, if it's a real problem? Yeah. So if there's a problem with what they're doing, they're not doing what they ought to be doing, or there's a problem with how they're relating to others in the team, that may be a real issue. What is it that you can do to try and make this work better? And that yeah. often flips it okay. so that they recognise that it's not just their problem, this is something about what we are doing together as okay. a team. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask you all to answer this question and try and just keep it succinct, maybe give us an example of how you could do it. Um, this, is, this question, it's a tough one, and I think it's, it's relevant to a lot of people in our community, and especially Christians. So when you're married to somebody who isn't a Christian, and you may be, or you are going out or engaged with somebody who's a Christian, you're not, or they are Christian and you may not. So the question is, what is the advice you would all give to someone who has a non-Christian partner, uh, other than prayer, obviously, which is a gift from God, uh, what day-to-day -day advice do you have in helping to reveal God's love without preaching or pestering? It's a great question. Great question. <laughs> Tiny will go. Look, it's it's tricky, right? But I'm grateful for the sermon today because what what Dave illustrated was that. God, in his providence, knows all things and is in charge of all things. He's a sovereign God, right? So if you're a believer and you're in a relationship with someone who is not, to be trusting that God is at work in you and through you and through your relationship um, and to trust that. So in terms of proclaiming your faith, being convicted of your faith and to speak of it in your relationship, but to to live it, to to live your faith. Um, and that's going to look, you know, unique on every single day. It's going to be different, isn't it, in terms of saying the hard things sometimes that yeah. need to be said or being humble in the conflict or <laughs> it's yeah, going to yeah. be different depending on what, the, what comes up in your relationship. Okay. Thank you. Andrew. Um, a couple of couple of bits of the New Testament come to mind. Um, uh, Ephesians and First uh, Peter, I think it is. Um, so uh, Ephesians talks about the, the quality of relationships that husbands and wives ought to have, and particularly the kind of sacrificial love that ought to be demonstrated. That's something which is deeply rooted in the gospel, and I think is a lived example of it. And and Peter specifically picks up on. It's, it's wives who are the more vulnerable parties in, in that part of the world at that time, demonstrating the quality of their character, which again reflects the quality of the character of Jesus in their relationships. I think there's, um, I mean, in some ways, it's a different relationship to our work relationship with non-Christian colleagues, but I think it's um, important 
in the same way, um, in the sense that I think a turning point I, I find with some people is if I say we're not religious people trying to have religious conversations um, with, with non-Christians, partners, family members, work colleagues, we're spiritual people trying to have spiritual conversations. I think if we take that sort of religious mindset out, it actually frees up conversations. If we um, recognise that that people are usually open to considering the spiritual, um, some are close to that as well. But most people, uh, the majority of people would say, I'll be aware of a spiritual reality. Um, so if we can, if we can look for opportunities to connect with that, either with our work colleagues, our partners, our family members, I think we get um, some more breakthrough in some ways with the conversations we have. Um, the deepest story that we live out in our lives, um, just bringing that to the surface every now and then at the right moment. Um, my family aren't Christians, which is um, my parents and my sister and my brother, and that's so painful for me to to be with them as you can imagine they've heard the gospel several times um there was a classic moment uh, when i was 12 um when we were i was trying to tell the gospel around the dinner table and they were not listening and i just yelled at them you know you're going to hell and ran away um that was my least effective moment of evangelism funny that <laughs> you surprised me yeah, I know. <laughs> But it is part of family folklore. Um, <laughs> so, but the amazingly, the the critical moment when I had breakthrough um, with my whole family was when my mum uh, was in a coma with meningococcal in hospital, and I was by her bedside. And my church actually supported me by looking after my little kids. Um, so that I could spend as much time as possible with mum and I stayed with her and I advocated for her and I prayed over her and I wrote a book about what was going on in our lives, a journal, while she was in a coma and I presented it to her afterwards. Um, and my brother's a doctor and he, uh, he was also advocating and he was caring for her and arranging her medical care. She came through that time um, and I thanked my brother so much. Um, but this book that I put together, this journal, um, with my prayers, including the prayer at the time I sat with her and I was praying through Psalm 23, yeah. and when I got through through the valley of the shadow of death, she opened her eyes. Yeah. And it was just amazing. And I wrote all this in the journal. And I thanked my brother um, for all the work that he'd done. And he said, he said actually, he said, I think in this circumstance, you were the healer. Wow. And it's the first breakthrough moment <laughs> I had with my family. But it was a really precious moment. And it followed up with my dad saying, um, I'm not sure if I can believe, but you are the best reason I have to mm. believe in Jesus. So it's those sort of moments, you know, it's not the moments when we're trying to find a profound way of explaining the gospel. It's those moments of deep connection and faithfulness and obedience and serving. Mm. Those are the moments I think that really cut through sometimes. Thanks, Kai. Dave? I don't know if I have much to add to that. It's amazing. But when the New Testament talks about, I'll speak to people who are married to non-believers, stay in the position that you are in you know, when God called you, right? Um, yeah, prayer, absolutely. But I think take the pressure off yourself and 
the, I think the Bible is less, we've talked about this before, less about proclaiming all the time, like there are evangelists and that's kind of their role. I think we're called to give an answer, to live a life that's, you know, worthy of people asking questions. Why do you think that? And so to take the pressure off having to say the right thing, that's absolutely, and just living a genuine life of faith, of struggling with doubt, being honest with things like that. And yeah. I think that's far more um, approachable. Okay, thanks. I'm going to ask one question from the floor and then we'll close. Anybody who has a burning, burning, burning question to ask? Anyone burning? <laughs> Feel free to stand up or shout it out and I can repeat it so everybody can hear it. Yes. Yeah, good. Good. Yes. Absolutely. It's a great question. So if you didn't hear it, uh, what about work for people who are retired and what does work look like in as a Christian? Great. Yeah, great. Thank Dave? you, Ruth. No, I'm going to throw it at okay. these guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is no word for retirement in the Bible. <laughs> That's really depressing, isn't it? But I think the reason for that is that um, in God's eyes, work is a good thing, um, that work is, uh, is something that's productive and helpful and work is not limited to what we get paid to do, basically. So I think there is always work to be done um, and there is always good work we can do um, no matter what age or stage we are. In fact, I think when we no longer need to get paid work for whatever reason then that actually frees us hugely in terms of our availability and flexibility um, I think that this pressure that society has to work as hard as you can for as short as you can so you can begin to enjoy life I think that's a really false yeah, story and we should call it out because I think what we're actually called to do is work productively in ways that bring flourishing to people and environments and contexts wherever we are. Um, I remember there was there's a lady in Melbourne um, and uh, she was very sick and, uh, and I was talking with her and I said to her, do you still feel God is close? And um, she said, absolutely. And I said, well, what do you feel God is calling you to do at this stage of your life? And she says, I am a prayer warrior for God. I'm fighting those battles for every other person. And yeah. I found out that she had 300 people that she'd specifically sort of get in touch with, 10 a day that she would pray for per month. Um, and she specifically did that work of God <laughs> in that context when she was basically unable to do anything else physically or emotionally. There is always good work to do. Um, we just have to ask God what it is, I guess. Um, two things. One, basically pragmatic, um, and that is uh, people are only now just coming to recognise the extraordinary economic value of all the non-paid labour that people do yeah, in households true. and communities. So one thing to, to think about is just how much it would cost to do the kind of stuff that you do if you had to pay someone to do it. Yeah, it's true. Um, so basically pragmatic, yep. but that helps us shift our thinking to recognise the value which is non-monetary value for all the stuff that we do. So one of the things I think that Christians need to do is 
reimagine our societies and economies so that we don't just count the things that can be numbered. That's the first thing. The second thing is way, 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 way obscure and theoretical, um, but I think is really important, and that is, as a community, we tend to value the plans we make and the things we do in the world, actions, agency it's called, that's what we tend to think of as important. Mm. And the, the more that is stuff that happens in people's heads and is enacted in that kind of intellectual world, the more we tend to value that. That's nonsense, um, quite frankly. Um, and as human beings, it is fundamental to what we are that we're not just doers of things in the world, but we also are recipients of other people's actions. Mm. That we are as much given stuff as we are giving stuff. And fundamental to the gospel is the notion that we receive who we are as creatures and in Christ. And it does not matter where you are, who you are, and anything that you can or cannot do in the world, nothing can take that away. And I think one of the things we need to think a bit more about and live more really is the reality of the value and dignity we just have as the things we are in the world, irrespective of anything we ever do. I'm going to stop. Um, and on that note, I'm going to close the panel. Can you thank the panel with me? And just before we close the, the uh, service, I can see there's warm food being prepared. So there's warm food for us after the service. The coffee cot will be on. I encourage you to say hello to somebody who's new or you haven't seen before. Uh, thank you for today. It's been wonderful. Thank you, the panel. And I'm going to ask Dave just to close I'm the prayer I'm actually going to ask Andrew to pray oh, for okay. us after Good. that. So please. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, thanks. Let's pray. Okay. Let's pray. Our loving God, we thank you for that love that love which defines you and defines us. Heavenly Father, we delight in knowing that because of your rich mercy, we are creatures in your world and children in your family. Lord Jesus, we delight in knowing you, in seeing in you what it means to be a real human being and for the invitation that you give us to join with you as your brothers and sisters, as your friends, and to be shaped by you. Lord Spirit, we thank you for the life that you have given us and the way that you shape us as your people and gift us for your purposes in your world. Out of that deep sense of thankfulness and delight, we ask that you, our Lord and Sovereign God, might enable us to hear your call and respond with faithfulness and love and delight we might serve those around us, we might contribute to your good purposes in your world, and we might know what it is to live in the favour of the Lord our God. Do this, please, for the sake of Christ our Lord. Amen.